Hello and welcome to Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning, a higher education podcast from the Center for Teaching and Learning at Columbia. I'm Katherine Ross, the Center's Executive Director. Let's get started. I'm speaking remotely today with the authors of an about-to-be-released book titled What Inclusive Instructors Do. It is my great pleasure to introduce today's guests. Dr. Tracy Marcella Addy is Associate Dean of Teaching and Learning at Lafayette College in Easton, Pennsylvania, where she oversees the Center for the Integration of Teaching, Learning, and Scholarship. Dr. Derek Duby is an Associate Professor of Biology and Director of the Center for Student Research and Creative Activity at the University of St. Joseph in Connecticut. Dr. Khadija A. Mitchell is the Peter C.S. D'Albermont, MD Scholar of Health and Life Sciences and Assistant Professor of Biology at Lafayette College. Mallory E. Sorrell is an Assistant Professor of Public Policy at the Sanford School of Public Policy at Duke University. Welcome to Dead Ideas Podcast, Tracy, Mallory, Khadija, and Derek. And I would ask each of you to respond by just saying your name and hello to our listeners so people can recognize who's speaking throughout the podcast. Hello, this is Tracy Addy, and I'm pleased to be here. Hello, this is Derek Doobie, and I'm also glad to join you today. Hi, this is Mallory Sorrell, and I'm delighted to be with you all this afternoon. Hello, this is Khadija Mitchell. I'm very happy to be here with you all. Great. I am super excited about this conversation, so we're going to dive right in. Um, I think it would be good if we get Tracy to perhaps set the stage a little bit for us, um, since the book is not out yet, <laughs> just to give us a little bit of an overview on how the book is structured. Happy to do so. Thank you, Catherine. So the book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, is structured in an increasingly kind of progressive way. Uh, first, we present some of the research and frameworks that support why inclusive teaching is essential to implement in our classrooms. Then we summarize a number of the key mindsets and perspectives of inclusive instructors that were part of our study. And that basically frames the rest of the book. Chapters three, four, and five in those ones, we highlight inclusive teaching practices. So first we focus on how instructors can be inclusive when designing the course, starting with the syllabus, to how they can build a welcoming environment throughout the entire course, and then on very practical specific strategies for inclusive teaching in their classrooms. We also follow that with, by, with providing a tool, the Who's in Class form, that we've also shared around with others to help instructors build more inclusive courses. And the book essentially ends with how to build a culture around inclusive teaching at your institution. So the book speaks to individuals on a variety of levels from instructors who are implementing inclusive teaching to educational developers who are supporting instructors in their implementation of inclusive teaching practices, and then also administration who are really interested or invested in thinking about how to be more inclusive within regards to the classrooms in their institution. Thank you, Tracy, that was very helpful. So 
All right. We're going to start with a big, wide open, broad question here. Why did you all decide that you needed to write this book? I'm sure you've asked yourselves that a few times in the process. <laughs> but um, you do hint it in your preface. Um, you give a little bit of a hint. You wrote, um, and I quote here, in general, the classroom continues to be a closed off setting, and we are hopeful that this book provides more of an entry into what inclusive instructors do. So you start off immediately by noting a dead idea, right? That teaching is something that happens behind closed doors and that it is not community property, which makes it really difficult for instructors to learn from one another. Can you expand on this or maybe other reasons why you decided that now is the time to write this book? Uh, was there some kind of aha moment perhaps in your decision? And I'm happy to lead that off because I feel as if I spearheaded my colleagues into uh, writing this book and they all have their own reasons for choosing, I think, to do so and, you know, playing a role in how it's developed over time. And so I, I think in general, one of my long term goals in working with faculty members has been to demonstrate how much we gain by sharing our teaching practices, by observing courses, by making it more visible what we do when we're teaching. So in this book. I wanted to kind of think about how do we do that with inclusive teaching? How can we make it more visible, evident what it means? And a lot of confusion can happen around what is inclusive teaching? What exactly is it, right? What does it look like if I implement it in my classroom? So my hope in this book, and this is kind of my aha, is that I, I was hopeful that we would be able to kind of demystify inclusive teaching. We could focus on those instructors who do it. What do they do? You know, their mindsets, their practices, their frameworks, and then provide good tools, et cetera, to actually help um, us understand what this thing called inclusive teaching that we talk about is. So, so to speak, in a lot of ways, I like that the, um, I guess, the analogy of thinking about seeing through the window of your classroom kind of thing. So um, I feel like the book, I was hopeful that we could actually do that with regards to inclusive teaching. And I'll let my co-authors also answer because I was excited to work with them on this book because I thought of them in so many, in, in different ways in which they integrate, like implement inclusive teaching and how much of an asset they would be to help co-author co this book. I'm, I'm happy to chime in. So. Uh, I was the, I think the last one to join the party. So this book was going to get written whether I was there or not. Um, but for me, one of the um, things that was really appealing to sort of join on to work on this project was exactly what Tracy said, right? I can't think of a stage in, in my own development as an instructor that wasn't profoundly shaped by learning from others, whether that was my first um, time TAing for, for a course as a graduate instructor um, you know, to this current moment, right, where we're all trying to navigate teaching in a pandemic and just learning so much from um, these both successes and failures of other instructors who are trying to accomplish the same thing that you are. Um, and there are so many ways, I think, in which we're able to share um, with one another and learn even more, you know, with the changing social media landscape where you can hop on Twitter and say, hey, I need a suggestion for an assignment or for a reading. Um, and so the idea of focusing really on what we can learn from, from other instructors was, was really appealing to me. Great, I'll, I'll jump in. So, you know, I wrote this book for really a number of reasons. And the first of which was 
to, to give myself a chance to reflect and thoughtfully consider and absorb the current research and perspectives around inclusive teaching in higher education. Um, selfishly, I felt that that process of writing the book would improve my own teaching and my own ability to connect with my students. So there was some personal gain I was going to get out of it. But really in the bigger picture, I participated in writing the book to help others that are on their own journey as educators, uh, specifically those in their early careers or early in the process of developing an inclusive classroom. I know for myself as a white male from a middle class family, I came into teaching with my own background, my own set of conscious and unconscious biases. It took me a while to fully appreciate the diversity of experience that every classroom holds and how that can be a real asset to the learning process. Finding ways to unlock that asset is something I feel like every teacher in every classroom can benefit from. So I wrote this book to support those looking to unlock the strength in their classroom and allow them to profit not only from my experiences, but from the research done on the topic, and especially from the voices of the faculty and instructors from around the country that we collected and heard from in our national survey on inclusive teaching. Um, and finally, as, as Tracy was mentioning, you know, any opportunity to work with this set of colleagues and learn from this set of colleagues was something I didn't want to uh, let pass me by. That's great. And I will mention, um, because it ties to what you just said, Derek, that in this book, integrated throughout the sections are questions for reflection, which I think are is extremely helpful for people who do want to use this as a self-reflective time and to really think about their own practices in the classroom. So very much aligning with what Derek was saying. Khadija, you want to add something here? Sure. Uh, just to echo what my colleague said, uh, a lot of points resonated with me. I think that teaching and learning really happen in a community space. And so a lot of time I think about building classroom community. And I was really excited about this project because we were able to see how people built classroom communities across different types of courses, uh, different disciplines and around the country. And when we wrote the book, I think that uh, one thing that came to mind is how do we celebrate and appreciate these different ways of building community? And the book allows us to do that. And I think that often we think this is a heavy lift, but there are so many small ways that we can promote inclusive teaching. So that was one of the things that really got me excited is that there wasn't a huge overhaul that had to necessarily be an expert. You had to do this for decades or a day, that there are ways, small ways that you can promote inclusive teaching. So this was a huge motivator for, for me. Great. And that's something I really appreciated about the book, um, the tone that you said, and you may have even said this explicitly at some points in the book, that many instructors are already doing this work. Whatever right. name they have for it, they are they are doing it and they are doing it in small steps and some in very big steps. But there's no just one right way to do it, right? So um, honoring the practices that are out there and that people are using already, I thought was really affirming right. and a nice approach to it. Yeah. So I'm going to go through the book um, pretty much chapter by chapter just to hear thoughts on, on each of these uh, sections. Um, in chapter one, you you rightly raised the many systemic issues that students face, um, you know, students like first gen, adult learners, socioeconomically challenged students, 
LGBTQ, international students, students with disabilities, students of color, you know, in our institutions of higher ed, there are a lot of um, maybe not barriers, but sometimes almost barriers for them to feel like they belong in these spaces. Um, and you stress the importance as a result of this of knowing who is in your classroom, whether it's a virtual classroom or a physical classroom, and who is in your institution, even in the bigger picture. I found that very interesting. Um, but then, sort of a, a reality check, right? In chapter two, there is a quote where you say that some of the instructors who responded to your survey um, reported that, and, and I quote here, that their colleagues did not believe it to be their responsibility to implement inclusive teaching approaches, but rather the offices of diversity or others on campus involved in diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts, um, end of quote, should, should be doing that work. And I thought that was really an interesting contrast, right? In chapter one, we really talk about that in order to be effective teachers, we have to know our students. But then there's this whole um, sense among many faculty that um, it's just not part of my role to do that kind of work. So what, you know, this is a, a clearly deeply embedded dead idea in the academy among some instructors that their role is content expertise and content delivery in some fashion, right? So how do you approach uh, instructors when they don't see the need to know their students um, or, yeah, persuade them, right? That's, that the social belonging is a really important part of learning. Yes, I will jump in there. I think you raise a very hard and challenging question that we face, especially as, you know, also educational developers who work in this uh, area. And in general, like if you're faculty members who are trying to convince your colleagues, right, that this is important for our students. I will say that um, there's been a number of ways that I've seen this effective in my experience. And one of them, which is a big push for our, my center, is by hearing students, <laughs> by actually hearing students' voices, by having students tell them um, the importance of social belonging to them and also just being included in the classroom. So one of the things that we've done um, to help promote this is to have students as partners with teaching, um, with faculty members, and to actually have outlets for them to share um, this type of thing and how their classroom experiences is greatly impacted, you know, by belonging. So I think one of the biggest ways we can do this is by actually having opportunities to hear student voices, um, to hear them tell us that this is important to them. Um, another thing I've here I've seen as kind of effective in my experience too is just having some faculty members who are very invested in it or instructors who are very invested in this to um, kind of um, help their colleagues kind of uh, see, you know, how important it is and how invested um, that that if they can actually do this, the changes that they can make, the transformations that they can make in their classrooms. So having some uh, faculty members who are really 
um, invested that will take a lead role in showing that to others and also building a culture of community, I think with this like, like kind of like we're all in this together to support our students and having that framework, I think is just been, a, you know, as a more effective framework. It's not always easy, I think, to, to do that, but, um, or to have everybody believe as well. And then the third thing I'll mention is we've actually asked our students these questions, where have they felt the most, uh, it, what aspects of their experience in college have they felt the most, you know, importance where it's in, belonging is impacted. And they've actually told us very clearly in their top reasons that in the classroom and with my professors. And so I can use that as kind of evidence that this is something that's very important to your students right and we can actually see that because our students have said this to us and one of the things that i would add to what tracy so nicely explained there is what khadijah had actually mentioned before and like letting the faculty know that it doesn't have to be a complete overhaul from ground up you don't have to tear down what you're doing and start again but doing a small thing or, or like you mentioned catherine that Many faculty are already doing these things, but amplifying those and putting them to the best use possible and working on those things you already know how to do um, can be kind of get that snowball rolling down the hill. And then over time, it can build and build and build. I would just um, add on to that. Uh, you know, I think in addition to the to the fear, what Derek is alluding to here is right, faculty, you know, and instructors have real time constraints. Um, folks who are working at um, you know, in any number of positions at an institution are often overburdened and the expectations for what we're doing with our time, you know, frequently exceed the amount of time that we have. And so I think, you know, one of our hopes with writing this book is that not only does it say, you know, what Derek just said, which is, look, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are some small things you can do to, to make a real difference, but also, <laughs> we can give you, we can point you in the right direction. We can give you some questions to ask. We can give you some templates to use to make that process more efficient um, so that when you are constrained sort of in your own, you know, time and energy, um, let's let's kind of get you over some of these hurdles and, and, and give you a blueprint to help move forward with, you know, sort of reworking um, your, your, your course to be more inclusive. So moving on to chapter three, um, you talk a lot about the importance of the syllabus as a tool for inclusive teaching. And I'm right there with you. I've always thought that the syllabus was um, underappreciated as, as a teaching tool. Um, and you say uh, in the book, I quote, the syllabus is one of the first ways that an inclusive instructor begins to foster student belonging and equitable practices in a course, end of quote. Of course, in higher ed, there are a lot of dead ideas about the syllabus. Um, uh, as I just discussed in a previous podcast with the authors of a new book called The Syllabus, right? Um, it's often viewed as something we write for administrators, right? It's a document where we house things. It's a contract. The tone doesn't matter. It's just deadlines and penalties, policies, right? But I'd like for you all to share, you know, why you think the syllabus matters so much and maybe share some steps that instructors could take towards a more inclusive syllabus. 
Sure. So I'll um I'll take that one. I, I think actually in the book we talk about some of these dead ideas with respect to the syllabus, right? The idea that um, you know, the syllabus is a is a contract, right? Where we're sort of defending ourselves against claims that students might make that we didn't give them, you know, what they needed for their course or that it's for administrators. We talk about some of the sort of course design choices um, that may also be be dead ideas. But, you know, when it comes to the syllabus, um, I think the syllabus is a critical tool for inclusive instruction because inclusivity isn't going to happen by accident, right? You're not just going to wander into your course and cross your fingers and, you know, have this sort of like beautifully inclusive course come to fruition without some thought. So I think from the perspective of the instructor, the syllabus is really a chance for you to put together a strategy, you know, a roadmap to create an inclusive course, to be thoughtful about it. Um, and from the perspective of students, um, a syllabus is really important in part because it's the first point of contact uh, in a lot of instances that instructors have with their students. And so it is a tone setter for the course, but it's also a resource that students are hopefully going to return to um throughout the semester and you know and as much as it's a resource it's going to be um giving students uh information on um really sort of how to participate in the course and and those are all pretty crucial things for building an inclusive course so you know in the book we talk about inclusivity as revolving around um or, or as sort of creating belonging in the classroom which tracy was just talking about, and also sort of creating equity in the classroom. So when we think about the syllabus as a, a mechanism to start creating belonging and, and to promoting equity, um, you know, in the book, we talk about that around three sort of big um, strategies when it comes to the syllabus. With respect to belonging, the first is, you know, you're really trying to show students that they have a place both in the classroom, but also in the larger field. Um, and so one of the first things I think, and this is, I think, one of the most intuitive things, perhaps for instructors, um, is to think about, you know, does your syllabus um, sort of expose students to diverse perspectives in your fields, um, in terms of the readings, in terms of the media you're using, um, and not only diversity in terms of, you know, who is contributing to the sort of intellectual material you're having students read, but also what are they talking about, right? And are those things going to be relevant to the lives of different groups of students in your classroom? So that's, I think, question one, right? Does your syllabus, um, you know, provide diverse perspectives? The other thing that's really critical to belonging that we talk about in the, in the book is, you know, does your syllabus provide a framework for engagement that is going to give students both um, permission and also the tools to be sort of full active participants in the course to help shape the course. Um, and so a syllabus is a critical way to set expectations, not only in terms of what you as an instructor expect from students, but also, and I think this frequently gets left out of syllabi, what students should expect from you as the instructor uh, and also what they can expect from one another. So for example, we could think about that as information about, um, you know, sort of community standards for participation, or um, if we're thinking about what students can expect from the instructor, information about um, how, you're gonna, how you're going to respond to student work. And if you're going to, you know, 
give feedback in a timely manner or make yourself available to students in particular ways. Um, and so those are really critical things that the syllabus can set up that address belonging. When it comes to the question of equity, um, in the book we talk about sort of the syllabus as a, way, as, as a document that can help promote the conditions for success for sort of all students in the course. And we talk a little bit about um, explaining in the syllabus sort of the what, the how, and the why of what you're doing in the course. So it's not enough just to tell students what you're doing, which is kind of the, the traditional model of the syllabus, but give them the resources and explanation to explain how, like tell them how they should be doing it. And also the rationale for why, because when we're thinking about inclusive course design, um, you know, we need to be mindful of the fact that most of our students aren't coming in understanding how higher education works and how academia works. And they don't really know why you're asking them to do um, certain things. And the syllabus is a great place to start conveying that information. So I, I think those are some of the basics that we talk about um, in terms of you know, the, the importance of a syllabus and then sort of course design more broadly to making an inclusive classroom. Right, I think that's really important, right? That students, come in probably expecting to work very individually and the idea that they're becoming a part of a community of learners and a community for learning is most likely something relatively new to them. So it's really important to, to get that out front with, especially with the why, right? As you just said, Mallory, yeah. Yeah, so around um, the syllabus, just, you know, as an anecdote of my own experience, I very much started off teaching and thinking about the syllabus as that contract, right? And okay, this is all the things we're going to do. This is what deadlines you're going to need to get them in and, and thinking about the what are you going to learn over the last couple of years over the process of writing this book over what, you know, the, the COVID pandemic has, has thrust us into my syllabus now instead of opening up opening up with the course description right at the top and you know my name and the class in the course description, it now opens up with a course context. And what is the context that we're coming into this course with? Um, and, and hitting on some of those concepts of being a community of learners and how that the expectation is that each of us are going to be contributors, each of us are valuable to the course, um, what's going on in the world that may affect how we learn in this course or what we learn in this course and how my expectation is that we're going to have mutual respect across all members of the classroom. And that includes me respecting my students and, and being a part of that community, not just, you know, standing on a pedestal above that community in any way. Right. So really centering the equity and even addressing some of the power dynamics of the role of the instructor. So I'm going to move on to um, talking a little bit about the parts about what instructors do, right? What inclusive instructors do in their classrooms. Um, and in chapter four, you say, and I quote here, inclusive instructors across the country work hard as welcome ambassadors. They build positive classroom environments using a variety of strategies but agree on the same three basic tenets of making students feel welcome in higher education classrooms. Could you share those three tenets with us and just perhaps note in passing what dead ideas you're displacing 
with those? Sure. So the first basic tenet is how to intentionally create welcoming classroom environments by respectfully, I think that's a key word there, respectfully acknowledging student differences, okay? Uh, encouraging equitable participation and building positive relationships both inside and outside of the classroom. I think some of the dead ideas that we thought about when we were writing this chapter was, you know, thinking about positive relationship building happens inside the classroom. So there are a lot of instances where we saw inclusive instructors talked about going to see their students compete or perform or going to see other activities, right? I think that historically we think the learning and the teaching, this impact and this relationship building happens inside this physical classroom, right? Uh, also, we know that office hours were a space that traditionally we thought this is the only space outside of a classroom, right? So um, the second tenet is when to create a welcoming classroom environment while recognizing that it's never too late. So this deads the idea that you have to make a student feel welcome on the first day, right? So you can actually make a student feel welcome before they set foot in the classroom or log on to your course in this remote context, right? Um, you can make a student feel welcome at the end of a class. You can invite them even after the course is over to come back and have a conversation with you. So there are numerous instances of inclusive instructors um, having this second tenant. And finally, how to reestablish welcoming classroom environments after some type of violation, right, or some type of disruption using conflict resolution approaches and community building practices and pedagogies. I think uh, this is deading the idea that the instructor is the disciplinarian, that this is a shared space, right? And that everyone in the community, whether it's the person harmed or someone unintentionally uh, inflicted this practice, that you can work together to restore the balance in a positive classroom community. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. And you're um, addressing a, a dead idea, I think, that students come in with very frequently, which is that everything depends on the instructor. The instructor holds the power. And so you're communicating to your students that it's, no, it's all of us. We're all in this together. So right. that's, uh, uh, that's great. And Catherine, I think I really love the fact that the book has tools to help you restore that balance, right? And explaining what restorative justice is and how you can do this from both instructor and the student's perspective. In chapter five, which you've titled, How Do They Conduct Class Inclusively? You highlight uh, a lot of ways that inclusive pedagogy can be enacted in classes. Um, and many of them are things we've heard about already in this podcast, you know, such as student-centered and transparent and community-based, things like that. Um, there's so much to say here, and unfortunately, we don't have time to go into all of these topics, but there's one topic that I really want to talk about, um, and that's assessment. And I want to talk about that because there are so many dead ideas about assessment in higher education. And it's, you know, it's the one place where students often can get stuck or get hung up. It can become a, a real barrier um, to, as um, someone earlier said, to seeing themselves in these spaces, to seeing themselves in this discipline, right? Assessment sometimes is that thing that makes people say, oh, I don't belong in science or I, 
not good at languages, whatever the discipline is, right? Um, so here's a quote I, I want to hear more about. Inclusive instructors strive to use assessment measures that are fair and unbiased and continually seek feedback from their students to modify their approaches. So fair tests, right? I think most instructors would say they try to make their tests fair or they would just say my tests are fair. Of course, my tests are fair. But um, could you just give us a couple things people should maybe look out for when they want to be sure their tests are fair? And um, the idea that students should be asked to give feedback on how they're being assessed. That's a little bit radical. Yeah, so I'd love to chime in on this one. And one of the things I've implemented in my own classes that that's been kind of an out of the box way of assessing student knowledge and understanding and learning has actually been a student created exam. So the way this worked was that instead of a cumulative final exam at the end of the semester that I as the instructor created, what I had was each day, each class session or each assignment, there was one or two or maybe three students depending on the size of the class that were tasked with creating a question that they believed kind of pulled some of the most important parts of that day's learning or that assignment's learning out. And then what would happen is the following time we came into class or between classes, however you're, you want to administer it, everybody in the class would actually answer that, those student-created questions. And then the next time we had a meeting, the next um, assignment that came up, it would be a different student or a different set of students creating a question based on that. Um, and what this does is it, first of all, allowed the students to be assessed on both the question that they created and are they gaining the knowledge that you want them to kind of right in the moment, almost in real time, not fully while you're actually doing it, but, but pretty immediately thereafter, which was really nice for me as an instructor, because then in my next session, I could say, you know, okay, you know, these were some of the main ideas that came out, we saw this in the questions that, that the students created, or maybe I need to drive this home a little bit more and kind of revisit this topic. And that was really useful for me. But also then, you know, they are still getting assessed on questions on important topics throughout the semester as well, um, which is really nice. And it gives the students kind of an agency in their assessment um, and challenges them in different ways than they might normally be on just a cumulative final exam at the end. And it keeps them engaged kind of throughout the, the breadth of the, the course as well. Um, the second part of your question kind of asked if students should really be asked to give feedback on how they are assessed. Um, and I would say absolutely. You know, by learning about our students in the classroom, it can help us frame an exam or another assessment in a way that both challenges the students and is fair to where they were coming to the course and where they should be currently. Um, Remember, we're not in the field of education as instructors to separate the cans and the cannots in our classroom. That's, that's not our goal. We're, we're here to help students realize that they can, show them ways to figure out how they can, and support their progress turning towards learning success both in and out of the classroom as they move forward. Um, so with that in mind, it's important that instructors recognize that tests aren't the only way to assess a student's mastery of a topic or its application, and in many cases may not even be the best. Um, there's research that suggests that offering mixed modality assessments, things like tests or writing assignments, multimedia presentations, oral discussions, um, things like that, whether they're student choice or instructor selected, can lead to increased student satisfaction and learning outcomes.
Yeah, I've always been a big fan of student um, questions, students providing questions for exams. I have found that to be really powerful in the classes I've taught and very motivating. The last question I have, and this is one of my favorite questions that I ask everyone that I interview, and that is, tell me something you've learned from your students. I guess I'll go here. <laughs> I would say just to listen to them, to get their feedback. Um, I think it's so important to understand the perspective of our students. And with regards to inclusive teaching, focusing on belonging and equity, well, they know best <laughs> what it looks like uh, because they're experiencing it. So I think that's one of the best things I've learned from students and working with students is, you know, just, just listen to them. <laughs> Sounds so simple, right? <laughs> well, I guess um, one thing that I've learned from my students is you're never too old to learn. And so, you know, I think I really appreciate that students aren't blank slates and they bring to the classroom their own identities, like Tracy mentioned, perspectives and lived experiences. And I try to respectfully acknowledge them as individuals right, and use whole student approaches. Uh, but I think that every course I teach, I learn more about the students and than they than I anticipated. So definitely you're never too old to learn. Great. Love it. Yeah. So one of the things that I am continuously learning is just how strong many of our students are and how how many of them are, you know, overcoming challenges and obstacles along their academic journeys, along their life journeys that I never had to face in my own. You know, I had my own set, but some of these students have totally different experiences and totally different obstacles that they're faced with. And, you know, in order to keep that in mind and to really create a course with that in mind, it makes it a lot more powerful of a reason to actually build a course that is inclusive when you can consider that your students have all those different experiences and that somebody may not have the, you know, I show up, I study, I go home, I study, you know, I come to class and that that's my day. Um, you know, there's so much more than that going on and, and our students, especially now, again, you know, in the time that we're in where there's been conversions from virtual or from in-person to virtual and vice versa, um, you know, the, the challenges are real there and our students are really strong and in many cases really driven to overcome them in, in some fantastic ways if we give them the opportunity. Right, so avoid making assumptions, right, about what might be going on and pay attention to what might be going on, especially in these times. I think for me, um, one of the lessons I've really taken from my students is, you know, how to be comfortable with, with being uncomfortable, which I think is really critical for inclusive instruction. This idea of, of fear has come up a lot today, you know, um, being sort of nervous that you're going to do something wrong or this is going to be hard. But if you're talking about inclusive teaching, you know, one of the keys is being able to recognize our own biases and, and make mistakes and then, you know, correct them. <laughs> And those are all uncomfortable. And I think they're especially uncomfortable when we have this model of instruction where we're supposed to be experts. Um, but, but the flip side of that is we expect our students to be uncomfortable all the time, right? We just kind of think of that as part of the learning process. And as a result, you know, it turns out students are actually really pretty good about that. And, and so watching students be willing to be uncomfortable, to make mistakes, to learn from those mistakes, 
Um, I think they have a lot of lessons to teach us as instructors um, about how to do the same thing. A and also, you know, that students, I think ultimately appreciate and respect that when, when instructors can be uncomfortable and can make mistakes and can accept those and, and sort of grow from them. So um, that's, that's been a big lesson, I think, for me. Yes, very much. And sharing our own vulnerabilities with students. That's something I've heard from students during this pandemic that they appreciated that in some cases, the instructors were also uncertain and vulnerable. And they thought that was very helpful in building a relationship with that professor. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much for being here. I really appreciate your time. It was great to have this opportunity to chat with you all. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. An absolute pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to learn more about our guest book, What Inclusive Instructors Do, check out the show notes. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website where you can find any resources mentioned in the episode ctl.columbia.edu backslash podcast. Please like us, rate us, and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Dead Ideas in Teaching and Learning is a product of Columbia University Center for Teaching and Learning and is produced by Stephanie Ogden, Laura Nicholas, A.B. Seidel, and John Hanford. Production support from Kate Ty Piggott. Our theme music is In the Lab by Immersive Music.